This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Spirit of Leadership, Liberating the Leader in Each of Us by Harrison Owen in 1999. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 8. The Second Function of Leadership. Growing Spirit Through Collective Storytelling. Spirit evoked by vision can begin to realize its potential not only when the vision is shared, but also when it is grown. Leadership has played a central part, or leadership has a central part to play in this process through collective storytelling. Storytelling may seem a rather weak read with which to build an organization, but that is to misunderstand the power of stories. When I say story, I am referring not to some idle or amusing tale, but rather to the central vehicle through which the spirit of an organization is gathered and focused on the job at hand. The story is the organizational mythology. Having said mythology, I may have made the situation even less comprehensible, for to many people, myth is not merely an idle tale, but is by definition untrue. Contrary to this view, myth is neither true nor untrue. Rather, it is behind or beneath the truth. It establishes the context within people, talk to one another, and determine the truth. A short example may clarify. What's the story anyhow? The power of a myth. Suppose you walk into a business as a prospective employee. You are presumably interested in, the nor in all the normal first-line questions about compensation, benefits, job description, hours of operation, and organizational structure, the answers to which are provided to you through a series of tab tables, charts, and manuals. Necessary as that material is, it seems a little bit dry and abstract. You press deeper to questions that are more amorphous but very important, questions about working conditions, what it feels like to work in this place, and what it all really means. Some answers will appear just by walking around and looking at the physical circumstances, the layout of the facility, the color on the walls, the patterns of activity. But sooner or later, you will find it necessary to, to identify some kind of context in order to determine what is different about this place compared to all others. And most important, do you really want to be a part of it? At such a moment, it is almost guaranteed that you will search out an individual with whom you feel comfortable and ask, what's the story anyhow? What's really going on? Questions such as these are best asked after hours, in a bar, a coffee shop, or over dinner, all places far removed from the official presentations. This is the time to get down to where the rubber meets the road, to the nitty gritty, to hear the real story. If you then reflect on what you have learned, you may be surprised to find that the real story has very little to do with the cold, objective facts, which you probably already knew. The real story ends up being closer to war stories. In a curious way, the facts of the matter don't make any difference. Indeed, you may have a strong suspicion that the events recounted never happened at all. Regardless, something important is being communicated through what seem to be incidental examples. That something is the feeling or meaning of a place, which establishes the context within which all of the bits and pieces of an organization's life start to make sense. Without stretching the point, we might even say that the stories tell us something about the spirit of a place. In fact, these stories do more than that. They actually bring us into an immediate encounter with that strange thing we call spirit. Suppose that in our imaginary conversation over a cup of coffee, the tale goes like this. 
I don't really know what they told you up in the front office, but let me tell you like it really is. Last week, the boss called in five managers, looked at the numbers, and fired the bottom two managers. No warning, no separation packages, just out. I've got to tell you, this is a schlock outfit. Top management is just out for itself. No graduate degree in organizational psychology is needed to assess the quality of spirit in this place. And the fact that there may have been six managers instead of five, and that only one got fired and not two, makes very little difference in the assessment. The story very quickly communicates the reality of spirit in the place, and it is significant not only in itself, but also in the fact that your confidant chose to tell it to you. Even if the events described never happened, the very telling of the story gives you a fast picture of what is going on. Now, obviously one story one story once told does not make a myth. So the next day you go back and casually ask a number of people if they have ever heard the one about, and although the details and numbers may vary widely, it becomes obvious that the story is there. Of course, you may ask whether it is true, but probably that by that point it becomes clear that the historical truth or falsehood of the tale is infinitely less important than the fact that the story is being told. Senior management, if confronted by the story, would undoubtedly be upset. Either they would try to downplay it by saying something like, "Ah, oh, that's just a war story, or to discredit it by giving their version of the facts. Neither approach is likely to be very effective, for to see the tale as just a war story is to overlook the intensity, even passion, with which it was told. And giving management the facts will probably do little more than elicit a response like, well, that's just their story. The point is that stories are powerful, and they quickly and accurately reflect the spirit of a place. Indeed, stories may be the most powerful element of organizational life, for they create the context within which everything that happens is interpreted. Saying that they are of no value, or that they are untrue, does not change their impact, as would quickly become clear were senior management to challenge this power. Should an official denial be issued, it would be taken as, more, as one more example of the duplicity of the top brass. Even apparently positive efforts to change the story are likely to backfire. Imagine the general reaction if the fired managers were suddenly rewarded with a large separation package. There would be a lot of head-scratching and wonderment about what those SOBs are up to now, because the story is different. The story is, and the story rules which is why those who would lead must pay special attention to the tales that are told or that could be told. For if the story not only reflects the spirit of a place, it shapes that spirit and determines the ways in which it will behave. Creating the Collective Story The driving story of an organization is never just the story of the founder. It starts there, however, for vision is the organizational mythology in future tense. The power and the passion of the primary vision will be sufficient to generate excitement if that vision is big and attractive. And the excitement begins to deal, and the excitement will be grounded and focused if, and as, the visionary begins to deal with doability, both technical and historical. A reasonable case must be made that the particular vision could be accomplished by those who hear the tale. But the essential shift from exciting interest to committed involvement will take place only when the story becomes a collective one, no longer the founder's tale, but our story. Captured imagination is the beginning, but its growth is essential. 
Inspiring a group of folks to believe in a new idea is always the first step, but letting they, that idea truly be theirs to, to evolve as they are able and interested marks the difference between short-term excitement and long-term commitment. From here on out, the telling of the tale, even in the future tense, must be a collective activity, and it is exactly here that difficulty emerges. Visionaries, who have passionately given birth to new ideas, often find it difficult to let them go. And letting go is the essence of the operation. It is an old truism that everybody sees everything from their own perspective, which means that when it comes to storytelling, each person must tell the story in his or her own way. Thus, the marketer's story about the new product will probably have much more to say about the market than about the product, while the engineer will tell a tale with the opposite points of emphasis, and so it will go with all the potential participants. The opportunity for misunderstanding because of differences in language is acute, but the possibility that offense may be taken by the original visionary is higher. As the story is told and retold from several points of view, it will inevitably lose some of its original purity and focus, even as it gains breadth and depth. For the one who conceived the vision, this can be very painful indeed. Leadership here involves resisting offense and maintaining both the open space in which the story can be told and the focus of the tale, so it makes some sense. In a word, the second immutable principle must be honored. No matter what the level of effort, it will remain true that whatever happens is the only thing that could have happened. Really letting go is essential. Maintaining open space is a job that many will find difficult, for it involves less rather than more, waiting as opposed to moving. It is so tempting to fill up all the space with meetings and agendas under the impression that something must be done. But this is to forget that the most fertile ground for the growth of spirit is a question. The press of business and the passion of the visionary both drive for closure. But if those drives are heated before all needed participants have an opportunity to contribute, the vision will die stillborn. In practical detail, the leader must set the direction and manage the boundaries, while leaving almost everything else to the participants themselves. The leader's sole contributions may be only a few remarks to the effect that, quote, I think we are widgets and not what'sits. End quote. The leader also has some work to do inside the boundaries, but that is not so much telling people what to do and think, outlining the plan, as it is making the connections and drawing out the implications of the several stories as they are told. It is a given that engineers and marketers, for example, will not understand each other at significant points. Even when they use the same words, they will be used with different meaning. Part of maintaining open space is constantly to clear away the obfuscation of jargon. There is no easy way to do this, for every professional group develops its own jargon, and worse than that, presumes that its language makes sense. One almost surefire way of reducing jargon is to invite people back to the level of storytelling, to move them away from abstractions and on to a narration of what it would look like if everything worked. Leadership in Action A story about leadership in action will make all of this more concrete. Several years ago, Owens Corning Fiberglass, OCF, of Toledo, Ohio, had an unfortunate run-in with a small lumber yard on the West Coast by the name of Wicks. At the time, OCF was the dominant force in the fiberglass business. They invented the stuff and were making about $4 billion worth of business a year. 
known as Big Pink in the trade, pink for the color of their product, named in honor of their mascot, the Pink Panther, they set the trends and seemed secure in their position. Then the sky fell. Wicks made a hostile run on Big Pink, and when the dust settled, management was still in control, but under very reduced circumstances. To pay off the raiders and stockholders, to say nothing of the army of lawyers and accountants, OCF went from having half a billion dollars in the bank to being a billion and a half in the hole. Not a happy time. Businesses were sold, employees were terminated, and annual sales moved from $4 billion to a little over $2 billion. The hero of the moment was Max Weber, n- better known as Max, or Super Max. If you hear the stories, Max did everything. He sold the banks on a bailout package, sold businesses to make t- the terms, and led the troops to safety at enormous cost. 14-hour days, 7 days weeks were the norm for all those who remained. After six months of this behavior, this was there was good news and bad news. The good news was that the company had not only survived, but was actually coming out of the woods. The bad news was that those all those who had pulled off this miracle were just about maxed out. I was working with OCF during this period, and during one session with a cross-section of folks, we were reviewing the state of the OCF spirit. One word summed it up, dragging. When we got down to the question of what to do about it, I suggested, in almost an offhand manner, that it would probably be useful to have a thank you Max party, as a way of saying thank you to Max and all the others who had put in the long hours, and also to mark a turning point to whatever it was that was to come next. Honoring the past and moving the future to the future, so to speak. I had scarcely scarcely gotten the words out of my mouth when two young women, almost in unison, said, Yes, we are going to do that. Interestingly enough, they did not say, could we, should we, or may we, but we are going to do that. It needs to be said that OCF had virtually no female executives, senior or otherwise. The thought that two young women could make such an affirmative statement was fairly astonishing. Their statement turned out to be the tip of the iceberg. In 48 hours, they single-handedly enlisted the interest and support of 40-plus people from all over corporate headquarters, established the time for a preliminary gathering, and were well on their way to doing something significant. Eight weeks from the day of their declaration, the Thank You Max Party, which by that time had been converted into the Pink Pride Rally, took place. 1,300 people in pink t-shirts and drinking pink lemonade were regaled by the Pink Panther under 600 pink balloons gathered beneath a huge banner that said, thank you. For two hours, they celebrated their past and looked toward the future. That the party occurred at all was remarkable, but the way it came into being was even more surprising. Without formal budget, top-down approval, assigned staff, or any of the other standard necessities of getting things done in corporate America, these two young women made it all happen. Not that there weren't moments of anxiety or even imminent disaster, but when zero hour arrived, the show went on. How did they do it? Quite simply, they had a vision, held the vision, shared the vision, and grew the vision. And the vision became reality. From the opening meeting until the opening gun, they operated superbly as mistresses of the informal organization. They, be- they began by telling a likely story of what it could and would be like without worrying at the start about all the problems and reasons why it couldn't be done. 
and the story had grown rich enough so that the imagination of others was hooked, all those interested were invited to grow the collective tale. At times, it seemed like confusion twice confounded, and those with a more orderly streak were sure that nothing concrete would ever happen. But the organizers pressed on. Nobody was told what to do. Rather, they were invited to contribute their best thoughts and actions. Some of the suggestions were, by almost any standard, just plain crazy. But when those insane ideas were laid on the table of the organizing group, whose membership changed from meeting to meeting in confirmation of the first immutable principle, the proposers were honored, even as the ideas were seen to be a little off the mark. Indeed, it often seemed to be the rule that when a crazy idea was rejected, that merely opened the space for two sound ideas to be born. A case in point was the matter of invitations. How would they get folks to come to the party? Standard procedure dictated approaching the CEO to receive his blessing and signature on an appropriate memo of invitation. The idea was deemed crazy for two reasons. First of all, it was by no means certain that the CEO would approve, and should he be asked and then disapprove, the whole thing was off. Equally important to the organizers was ownership of the rally. Of the rally. Were the invitation to come from the top, then it would be their party. Not bad, but not quite what everybody had in mind. The party, if it were really going to work, would have to be our party. Solution? One of the young ladies took herself to the CEO's office and invited him. Nobody had to come, and nobody had to participate, either in the rally itself or in its participations or preparations. But those who did come made, came from a point of passion. They had seen the vision, believed they could contribute, and taken personal responsibility for making their ideas a reality. As for the young women, they created the nurture and open space in which the story was collectively grown. The significance of the event went far beyond having a good time, although that certainly took place. During a party to celebrate the Pink Pride rally, folks had an opportunity to tell their stories and remember the highs and lows. The stories were told with animation, and they often concluded with words such as, I really felt like I made a contribution, and I have never had so much fun in all my 30 years I have spent in this corporation, nor felt that my con contribution was so worthwhile and appreciated. Or something like, I really felt that I made a difference, but it was only a party. When the last comment came by about it being only a party, I asked, was it? When was the last time you remember two young women with no budget, formal authority, or management-selected team putting on a major shindig for 1,300 of your best customers? And all of that in eight weeks, from concept to delivery? I think you have done much more than a party. Indeed, there is nothing you have done here that does not have immediate business application. OCF, like many corporations, has huge social gatherings for customers and clients, which may take a year and a million dollars to put together. The comparison was not only obvious, but also odious. Some other ground had been broken, too. The great myth of powerlessness had, in principle, been laid to rest. If two young women, one an accountant and the other a secretary, could do what they had done, nobody ever again could say, I can't do that because I don't have the position of power. There may, of course, be many good reasons not to do something, not appropriate, fear of punishment, and so on, but they are all good reasons and not sufficient ones. The power to make a difference is there if you choose to use it. Last, but by no means least, is the issue of leadership. 
The case can be made that certainly during the hours of the rally and those immediately preceding it, corporate leadership was in the hands of those two women. They did what neither the CEO nor Max had the power to do. They did it well, and they made a difference. How long that difference was la would last was anybody's guess, but for a period, spirit was focused and liberated. For those concerned with impact on the bottom line, the effect might appear minuscule. However, given the fact that prior to the rally, there was mounting evidence that the number of important executives were not only exhausted, but also beginning to look for a quick way out, and that after the rally, the mood had palpably changed, one might argue that the bottom line effect was far from minor. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.